from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Problems sourcing certain ag supplies. There's been a couple key things that have just really caused the uh, supply chain to get backed up. It's a shortage in some farm goods. We'll tell you how it could impact your farmer ranch. Biden doubles down on his climate plants. The United States sets out on the road to cut greenhouse gases in half. That's as USDA announces plans to expand the Conservation Reserve Program. And in John's world, the microchip shortage, the big finish. Well, we're following a developing story that can make it tougher for many farmers to fight weeds this season. Tight supplies of popular herbicides like glyphosate and glufosinate. Analysts say it's a perfect storm of pandemic slowdowns, shipping issues, and increased demand. Retailers telling us they're being forced to ration some products, including some fungicides. Replacement products is getting harder to come by, and they're helping prepaid customers first. And it's not just a supply issue, but a cost issue, with both branded and generic glyphosate prices soaring, in some cases up 50%. Well, I think you need to look at the kind of the uh, supply chain, so how long it takes to get produced through to um, to the ports across the oceans and then into the retail channel. So I think in reality, you're talking about uh, a lot of months. I think that anything that is being produced now is not going to really make it into the supply chain for this coming season. Taylor says don't expect this issue to get solved anytime soon. He believes the shortages in many popular fungicides will last into next year. We'll have more on the issue coming up in From the Farm. And a wild week for commodity prices. May corn did not just top $6 this week. It blasted right through it, rising double digits and well above the $6 mark. And soybeans and wheat also making big moves, with soybeans now well above $15. So what's behind the big market moves? Well, there are three big issues. First, Brazil's Serfina corn crop remains at significant risk, with half of the crop currently under moisture stress. Also, Brazil suspended import tariffs on corn, soybeans, meal, and oil until the end of the year and the U.S. cold weather continues to slow planting progress and emergence. The latest USDA crop progress report showing 8% of this year's crop is in the ground even with the five-year average and for soybeans 3% of the crop is planted one point ahead of the national average. The market is making new contract highs and so I think that means that participants uh, see this as an ongoing issue and they are willing to continue to push the market to higher levels. We're going to see options expiring this Friday uh, if we have uh, May futures in, in corn above $6, we're likely to have some new longs in the market uh, because of option exercise. Well, President Biden continuing his climate commitments, hosting world leaders as part of a virtual climate summit this week. The United States sets out on the road to cut greenhouse gases in half, in half by the end of this decade. The president committing the U.S. to reducing actual emissions by as much as 52 percent by the year 2030. But he did not lay out a specific plan for achieving that lofty goal. That's expected to come later this year. President Biden hosting the virtual summit attended by several world leaders, including Chinese President Xi Jinping. He pledged his country's commitments to a green development. We must be committed to the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities. The principle of common but differentiated responsibilities is the cornerstone 
of global climate governance. Xi reaffirmed China would achieve carbon neutrality by the year 2060 and to peak carbon emissions by 2030. He also announced China's plan to limit the increase in coal consumption. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack announcing this week USDA will open CRP enrollment. It will have higher payment rates, new incentives, and a more targeted focus on the program's role in climate mitigation. The agency's goal is to enroll up to 4 million new acres in the Conservation Reserve Program by raising rental payment rates and expanding the number of incentivized environmental practices allowed under the program. CRP's long-term goal is to establish valuable land cover and to help improve water quality, improve soil health, and carbon sequester it's also aimed at preventing soil erosion and reduced loss of wildlife habitat. But some critics of the plan say with higher commodity prices, it may be tough to move more land into CRP. Well, ahead of the president's summit, a bipartisan group of lawmakers is reintroducing the Growing Climate Solutions Act. The bill being introduced by Democratic Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan, Republican Senator Mike Braun of Indiana, and Republican Senator John Boosman of Arkansas. Now, highlights include creating an online one-stop shop for farmers interested in the carbon markets, establishing a USDA certification for private parties that farmers would work with in order to generate and sell their carbon credits, and a commitment to including farmers on USDA's advisory council. The American Farm Bureau Federation welcoming the plan, saying it provides more clarity and guidance for farmers exploring carbon markets. Well, from snow to freeze, another wild week for weather. We'll check in with meteorologist Mike Hoffman. That's next. Your next piece of equipment is on machinerypeat.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on machinerypeat.com. thought it was spring, but for several hours outside of these Kansas City studios this week, it looked more like winter and frigid and cold temperatures did not help any. I mean, for Mike, you know, looking at that drought monitor that was updated on Thursday, not only do we want to look at the current, but I also want to take you back about a month and show you how things have evolved over the last uh, four weeks or so. The drought monitor is still uh, looking moderate to severe uh, in the four corners, but also in the Midland and Odessa. This area has expanded as well as in the Dakotas. And again, just to kind of give you a sense over the last month or so, uh, how this has evolved and basically looking at the drought trying to alleviate in the Midwest. This area has gotten smaller uh, while other locations have gotten bigger and also more severe and extreme in the Dakotas and the Four Corners. There's also been some very cold temperatures across the region as well, impacting the precipitation. We had some snow come through last week. Going forward, it's the heat and the warmth that we're going to be talking about. The jet stream into Monday and Tuesday it gets uh, what's called ridging going on through the East Coast, and that's basically where our warmth comes from. And the possibility is there that we'll get a bit of a blocking pattern set up with low pressure system developing back here to the west and then not really moving all that much for a couple of days. And what that is going to do is going to keep the heat around around the East Coast and the Southeast, but also into the Midwest uh, for at least two days where it could be nearing about 70, if not 80 degrees in some locations. Chicago, Illinois, uh, one of them uh, that may be warming up into the 70s near 80 degrees. If we do get this cutoff low developing back here to the West, it would slow down the progress uh, of the cold air. But with the low moving across into Friday and Sunday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, that's when we get a return of some of the cooler air. You may notice though regarding this jet stream, 
staying back up here to the north. Uh, the ribbon of fast moving air, the separation between the cold and the warm being up here to the north means above average temperatures are going to be surging from the south to the north, not for one or two days, but for an extended period of time. So let's go ahead and look at that map coming up for our Monday, April 26. You got a low pressure system uh, that came through on Saturday and Sunday, leaving the east coast. High pressure trying to build in rather mild coming up on Monday and then warming up above average on Tuesday and Wednesday through a good portion of the nation. Uh, that uh, cutoff low that we were just looking at back up here to the north. So this is going to be on Monday, April 26th. By Wednesday and Thursday, that cold air is going to try to sink back down north to south. There is a slight possibility that we may see a few snowflakes or two, but for the most part, that's going to be in the higher terrain. This is all going to be rain across a good portion of the nation. Now, that being said, a warm with high pressure where we need some of the rain to come through just doesn't look like it's going to happen uh, this week. We may get a few shots at some rain uh, coming through, but for the most part, a lot of this will dry out as it drifts from the north to the south. Still heating up over parts of Texas and Oklahoma with high pressure in play means clear skies and dry conditions. Well, from $6 corn to new contract highs for soybeans, it was also a wild week for commodity prices. We'll find out why. Darren Fry and Arlen Sitterman join me next. Well, welcome back. We have Darren Fry and Arlen Sitterman joining us this week. What a dynamic week in the markets. Arlen, we're on a train right now when it comes to commodity prices, and it seems like that train is barreling down the tracks. It really is. No one wants to step in front of that train until the momentum turns. And that day will come, and it may come several times flipping in directions. But we have a very money-rich environment. M2 money supply up $4.3 trillion since the pandemic started. A lot of money seeking home. We know from studies that a lot of it's made its way into the marketplaces. The position limits have gone up 60 to 80%, depending on the commodity, as we've talked about on here before. That happened on March 15th. Uh, we have a story in the ags, in the grain and oil seeds, whereas the story is kind of getting tired in the equities. Uh, the energy market is kind of hitting a limit right now because our third largest consumer of energy, India, has rapidly rising COVID numbers, is in lockdown. And so that leaves the ags, the grain and oil seeds. So a lot of money's funneling. Now that story is still supportive. Uh, we have end users looking for a break in the market to get coverage, suddenly afraid that they won't get it and chasing after the market. So there is a fundamental story there, but the response by the markets is probably bigger for late April than what we normally would see because of these other factors. Is it just money flow, Darren, or are there other factors here domestically that are bullish that's causing commodity prices on Thursday, for example, limit up in a lot of cases? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's everything Arlen said, but it's also the domestic markets. We've seen whether it's the crushers on the bean side or the ethanol grinders or people that uh, need to uh, originate for export. We're seeing great domestic demand, and we've seen that reflect in the basis levels of what people are willing to pay. And we've seen bids at a dollar, dollar twenty over on beans and sixty to seventy over on corn. And so domestically, things are on fire and. You know, a lot of people are out of position here. End users don't have enough coverage. Farmers, the natural seller of the market is pretty much sold out on soybeans around the world. But on corn, we're approaching 85% sold here for farmer uh, percentages. And there just isn't the natural seller above the market. So we're seeing the, the point of least resistance be up on these markets. 
Well, and, and Darren, I mean, we blew past $6. We blew past $15 when it comes to the, the nearby contracts uh, for corn and soybeans. So, I mean, realistically, $7 corn, $16 soybeans. I mean, is that something that, w that we're starting to talk about now? I think so. You know, as we as we close the, the weeklies here over the $6 area, uh, we certainly would project something up in the $7. My next targets just in this wave three that I work on the Elliott side of things is projecting 680, 670 area at a minimum. And then we'd have still a, a down sequence and then a wave higher into summer, you know, when weather premium might get pumped in. So I think that's the minimum we're looking at. And new crop is really lighting it up in corn. I mean, you're just going vertical here ever since the 450 level. So, you know, we could go higher than, than what we thought and faster than what we thought. I thought this would be more May, June when we'd see this, but we're really seeing things open up. Soybeans upwards of 1580 to 16 bucks, certainly possible. And I think we might see a lot of action when we get into the delivery period here for May. We could see the commercials have to come after this for the spreads and trying to get people to deliver them as we see May elevate over the July for old crop spreads. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing, Arlen. Darren mentioned it. We were talking about possibility of these prices come this summer when we had that typical summer weather market action. But we're seeing this right now in April. Yeah, when you've got a lot of money at stake, they want to get in early, and that tends to start things early. And, and the keys to watch fundamentally, the money's there as long as there's a fundamental story, and then it's not. Fundamentally now, I think the big things are, obviously, we have strong demand from China as long as weekly shipments remain strong. Number two is Safrina corn crop in Brazil, where it's been very dry, especially in the southern half of the belt. The rainy season looks to be ending on schedule and not lengthening not extending as needed for the late planted crop. So Commodity Weather Group, our partners over there, estimating that we could see a drop in production of the Safrina crop of 16 to 17 million metric tons. So that could raise export demand by 400, 500, 600 million bushels. I, I don't think we're going to have that big of an increase because I think we're going to see a bigger shift toward wheat feeding overseas and in the United States. It's going to take a while for the USDA to acknowledge that, though, further tightening the balance sheets. And then we get into the Midwest weather with some of the risks that are inherent for the coming growing season west of the Mississippi River. Well, we are just getting started talking about these markets. So we need to take a quick break, and then we'll have much more when we come back on U.S. Farm Report. It starts with a plan. That's why America's Conservation Ag Movement is inviting you to get your farm business ready for 2021 with a free resource stewardship planning guide. Get your free guide today at agweb.com ACAM. Well, as we've been talking about, there are a lot of things in short supply right now. John Phipps wraps up his series on the microchip shortage. That's this weekend. John? The last two weeks we have looked at the problems in microchip production and the daunting demand we are facing. Since microchips are used in almost everything we touch, these issues will manifest in practically every aspect of our lives. Here are some of the consequences I think will be important. Patterns of consumption we thought would disappear with COVID probably won't. Now that's assuming COVID is brought under control. Adaptations like pandemic shopping mode will continue. For instance, one rule we have is always check for a few items that seem to be oddly and sporadically hard to get. 
For Jan, it's her frozen favorite, frozen chicken pot pie. For me, it's these PVC 4-inch caps. I always check for them whether I need them or not and buy them. While the U.S. economy is on track to grow as much as 6% this year, China just announced an 18% annualized growth rate in the first quarter. This suggests shoppers around the globe will be competing for this erratic supply. The chip shortage will become the most overused excuse since it got lost in the mail. U.S. foreign policy will have to take our dependence on Taiwan and South Korea much more seriously, which raises the stakes in those South China Sea skirmishes. This is also a particularly bad time for xenophobic and anti-Asian rants, even if you feel like it. Fixing these perceived economic and security risks will require longer-term political will, not policy reversals every four years. That's how we've gotten to this point in higher education, for example. Corporations and government will have to stop treating investment in R&D as tomorrow's problem. The quickest way to replenish our scientific ranks is simply outbid for the brains we need. Immigration regulations should reflect this. For ag, I can't see how the chip shortage affects our commodity prices unless logistics get hit. Timber and metals are another story altogether. Farmers need to spend more effort planning capital expenditures since dealer inventories are evaporating. We will have little to no leverage when negotiating machinery prices and delivery dates will be joke fodder. While I had just written about cutting back our on-farm parts and supplies, those items that could stop harvest cold should be on hand now or backed up as soon as possible. Remember, it's not hoarding if nobody knows. If inflation doesn't pick up this year, we really don't know what causes it. All the pieces are supposedly in place. Whack-a-mole disruptions will continue in strange parts of our lives. Above all, like the African saying, it takes a village to raise a child, we now know it takes a globe to make a microchip. Efforts to get along with other nations never had a higher payback. Well, and you also may have trouble sourcing everything from seed tenders to bale wrap. We'll tell you about that shortage later on the show. But up next, it's Tractor Tales with Machinery Pete. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're going to venture to Central Michigan to learn about a restored 1950 Moline. We've got a 1950 Minneapolis Moline RTE. The RTE meant that it had an extendable wide front. The Moline R was the smallest tractor Minneapolis Moline made until they bought the BF Avery Company in 52. The, uh, it's about 25 horsepower. It's got a 165 cubic inch engine, uh, four-speed transmission. The extendable wide front, they made 1115 versions with the extendable wide front, so it's fairly rare. We bought it uh, over in central Michigan, 98 I think. Uh, we restored this tractor in 2002. The uh, previous owner we bought it from, it had a bad engine knock, so we ended up putting new rings, bearings, all the new gaskets in the motor, put it right back together like it was, everything was great. Gone through the tractor front to rear, all new seals, bearings were needed, brakes, so on, clutch. The engine design was unique that uh, Minneapolis Moline advertised that you could service it from a milk stool. So you could sit on a milk stool and, and on the left side of it you can take the whole side of the engine off as one cover and get to your crankshaft and your rods and replace bearings and adjust bearings if need be. But yeah, that was they claimed it had a 140 or less parts than a typical four-cylinder engine in a tractor of its day. 
So they were really touting how less parts it had and how more efficient it was. This was only available in gas. There was uh, possibly one or more prototype propane versions, but they were never in mass production. It took us four years to restore this one. It's the first tractor we ever restored back in 2002. And so it took us, we got it in, I think, 98, and it took us to 02 to restore it. The barn's mostly full of Molines. Thanks, Greg. Well, from bale wrap to drainage tile, even seed tenders. If you're in the market, you'll have a hard time finding those supplies. And if you do, it'll come at a higher cost. We'll tell you why next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, have you noticed when you try to source supplies for your farm or ranch that things not only cost more, but some things are even hard to find? Well, that short supply situation isn't only real, it's impacting everything for plastics or resin-based products. That's what's especially hard to find. We dig into the reason and how long it could last in this Farm Journal report. As some farmers prepare to plant, farm inputs and supplies are seeing a shortage. There's been a couple key things that have just really caused the uh, supply chain to get backed up. Derek Ellingson manages a company that installs a drain tile. There's definitely a shortage and obviously when there's high demand, you know, these guys are going to capitalize, which is driving the price up, right? And there is a shortage. He says anything that is a plastic based product is in short supply. I don't think anyone could have ever expected the demand for plastic to drive through the roof. The car industry, boats, SUVs, side-by-sides, ATVs, home projects, all these decks, right? People putting uh, you know, plastic decking on their decks. Right? From demand to now production problems at plants, it's a problem that popped up last summer. Those hurricanes took many of the petrochemical facilities offline for a period of time. Uh, and that's that's kind of what started this whole domino effect. Uh, since then, uh, there were more outages in December that were not necessarily planned events for maintenance. And then we had the deep freeze that hit Houston, uh, New Orleans, and all of the areas in between that took so many of those plastics plants as well as refineries offline for several weeks in many cases. As a result, from the raw goods to the end result, plastic prices are racing higher. We've seen a very strong run up in some of those prices. Uh, PVC, uh, polypropylene, PE, all trading at highs you know, for the last 10, maybe 15 years, depending on which product and, and, and grade you're looking at. We've seen about 25 to 30% increase in costs in purchasing of what we're paying from a year ago today. It's not just on the row crop side. Ranchers and livestock producers are also having trouble sourcing supplies. But what is used to primarily hold hay bales together is a plastic product. And we've got a really interesting dynamic going on in the world with polyethylene, which is the resin material that is used to make silage wrap, baling twine, net wrap. Anthony Jones of Jones Twine and Bale Wrap says it's the residual effect of the pandemic last year, combined with production problems around the globe. And the supply, we're finding out from your USA manufacturers, from your European manufacturers, from your Asia manufacturers, that there is an extreme global shortage. As a result, prices are posting steep gains. With some silage wraps, we're seeing not just 10% or 15%, but we're seeing 20 
30, 40% price increases on these coming down the line. And we are hearing multiple manufacturers that are saying they might not even have products when we get close to season. Jones says climbing prices are happening as there's a shortage of product today. Even if it's just not the, the material cost, shipping is absolutely outrageous. We're seeing shipping rates double, triple, even quadruple in some areas. Clark's Ag Supply in Nebraska is having problems producing seed tenders. It's finding the raw materials that's really coming down to it. It's the, the steel, uh, the tube steel especially, that our augers go into for our seed tenders on our machines. He says it's not just trouble in sourcing supplies at a reasonable price. The price of tube steel in one week went up 150%. Uh, for 10 gauge tube steel. Um, it was just couldn't be found. And like I said, it, it, there's not, nothing around for it. It's also a shortage of parts to run the machines. The company that cuts out the, the holes on those, uh, they had just a small $10 part break and all of a sudden it shut down a million dollar machine for two weeks and like put a backlog on everything. A product that typically could be shipped overnight is now in a holding pattern for weeks to even months. We tried to get some in February. Normally it takes about a two month turnaround. We can get a lot of these parts. And Beck says the company is now trying to even secure supplies for next year. Honda motors uh, that we use on all of our machines are absolutely impossible to get right now uh, within two months. Um, our KYB lifts that we use, uh, they're six months out. Um, our superior gearboxes that we use, um, you know, they're also, like I said, we're actually ordering for next year already because they're just that on that short of supply. It's not just the equipment they produce. It's the problems that are popping up in every part of the supply chain. We finally found a source here in the United States. They're about four times more expensive than what we were getting them out of Japan for. As suppliers scramble to meet growing demand. We are seeing demand creep up. Um, it, it's been a it's been a it's been a big run for everybody in the industry across the entire Midwest and all the regions that are installing underground uh, um, drainage. And now some sectors can't even keep up. That I'm telling three to five guys a day no on tenders right now. This I don't have them. That says the catch up game is also happening at the production level. I mean the good news is the majority of these facilities are back up and running. Um, their utilization rates or their, their run rates are inching up and we're getting back kind of to a more normal place. You know, the risk is always, is there going to be another event that's going to disrupt supply again? A combination of improved commodity prices, bolstering demand at a time when supplies are slipping and it's now creating an industry-wide shortage for supplies some farmers and ranchers can't do without. Well, there's also concerns about a shortage of soybeans. We'll check back in with our marketing analysts for our marketing roundtables next. Welcome back to our marketing roundtables. Darren Fry, Arlen Suderman. Okay, Darren, talk to some farmers this week who were elated because they contracted some $5 new crop corn contracts yeah. this week. So as you look at a game plan, as you see this market really take off, I, you know, we have that fear of missing out that always takes place. But what can a producer's game plan be as we do not know how much further these markets can go higher? Well, I think that's a, a great point. You know, you don't want to, to miss out on $5 corn or or what could be, you know, a big crop combined with that $5 corn. So a guy needs to sell that if, if he wishes. But also you have to be cognizant of the upside. And I think that you got to buy some calls in here when you make those sales. I see a lot of upside potentially in the market, as, as Arlen commented earlier, as long as fundamentals stay strong and we're seeing some reductions in that Safrina crop, 
And if we have any type of problems here in our weather for 2021, you know, we could blow the lid off this thing. So I think you need that upside participation and call options or be putting put options under the market and not making forward sales. So you have some floors locked in. But I do think we have more upside than downside right now, just the time of year. But we're going to get to that point where we'll have a lot more downside than upside uh, as we get into June if the weather is okay. Yeah, you both talked about that volatility that we could continue to see. Arlen, are we seeing any hints that these high prices are starting to ration demand? We are starting to see more of a move toward wheat feeding. We're feeding, I think, a lot more wheat in the United States than what the USDA is currently indicating. And I think overseas as well. We think that maybe China has been feeding about 40, will feed this year, 40 million metric tons of wheat, maybe 35 million metric tons of rice. That's about 20 million metric tons of wheat, less than what USDA is currently showing right now for the increase. Uh, and so there's more upside for wheat demand there. They're not showing any downside on corn yet. And that's just in China. And I think globally, there's a big coming once USDA realizes that we're having that shift. That may be one of the corrections we have in the corn market, one of the bullish factors for the wheat market coming forward. And then we go back to looking at the overall fundamental picture that commodities are tight. Yeah, when we look on the feed users side, Darren, this week when we saw corn prices limit up cattle futures, especially that feeder cattle market, not responding positively to this news. But do you expect some more volatility to continue to happen in this cattle market over the next few months? Yeah, I do. I, I think that market is somewhat broken because we've seen the cash get lodged at a certain level, like 114 for seven, eight weeks. We broke out of that. But we've seen a total disconnect between the futures and what's happening like with the beef and how, you know, choice and select have been moving up. And yet cash is, you know, in this low 120s, high 118, 119 area. But then the, the futures are just down and feeder cattle are really taken on the chin with lives down and then corn up so strong uh, this past week. So I, I do think that we'll see uh, a greater connection as we move forward, but the Packers still has a lot of control. His margins are great. And we're still backing up cattle here in the feed in the feedlots. We're not current. And I think until we get current, we're gonna have some pressure on the downside for cattle. Arlen, real quick. I mean, we had some positive news come out of China that we are seeing more pork exports continue to go into China. Is that demand story, though, strong enough to continue to, to support pork prices here? Oh, I think it is. The market goes in one direction. It provides underlying support. We need to see strong exports going to other countries as well. And we've generally been seeing that. Uh, we did see a correction USDA data for Mexico that gave us reason to pause on Thursday. That was merely an accounting issue correcting what should have been in 2020 versus now, but that's still demand. Mexico has been a strong buyer. Other countries in Southeast Asia have been strong buyers. Domestic demand has been strong. We have seen some rationing of that pork demand switching over to beef. That's been supporting our beef prices. But the bottom line is demand for meat in the United States is strong because the consumer is cash rich. And that has been raising the price at which we see that overall rationing of demand for meat. Maybe a shift between classes, but overall, the consumer still likes their meat. Arlen, Darren, thank you so much for joining us on what a wild week in the markets it has been. Uh, stay with us. We'll have much more on U.S. Farm Report when we come back. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Delaro Complete. Keep your operation moving forward with new Delaro Complete fungicide from Bayer.
Well, climate was again the focus in Washington this week, and Farm Journal's corporate cousins over at Trust and Food Initiative have been working with the cereal giant General Mills. They've been helping tell the story of how they're working with farmers to implement regenerative agriculture practices on their operations. Farm Journal's Andrew McRae shares their story from Kansas. The General Mills program, a lot of people may not have heard about that. So what is it and how did you get involved with it? Uh, the General Mills program is a test program for this area in the Cheney watershed. Basically, they signed up different farmers with a test field and they've pulled a lot of samples on those fields. And uh, we're gonna measure in a three-year progress on what kind of soil properties we change by being regenerative. With that program, then we get to work with the Understanding Ag Company. We talk about cover crops, we talk about crop rotation, we talk about soil health, what we're doing, what we need to be doing, and it's a lot of fun. Kind of as a group, we're, we're learning and we're learning together. Standing here in the field, we're a long ways from the grocery store, but do you think we're continuing to have to think more about this because the people in the grocery store are wanting to know more about what you're doing out here on the farm? We're trying to see if there's a more sustainable way to grow a crop and by doing that we will be able to show that agriculture is efficient and we're making a safe sustainable product. This term regenerative agriculture, what does it mean to you? Regenerative to me is by farming that acre, my practice is I'm increasing the soil health on that acre and we're not going backwards. You've obviously been farming for a while. Are there some things though that you've been doing differently here in the last few years as you think about regenerative agriculture? In the last five or six years, we've done more no-till than we did before. And then we've moved into doing some cover crops. One of the easiest ways to get the cover crops on around here is following wheat harvest from 1st of July. And if you want to do a rye blend, you know, into August, September, where we're growing cover crops then behind wheat. We also, you can grow behind corn or you can go behind beans. You know, there's other ways to do it, but uh, behind wheat is an easy one. How do you go about selecting what you want to do for cover crops? Or has it been, we're going to try different things and just see what well, works? Really what I look at is what, what are we doing? What's, what's our goal here? Are we trying to fix the problem with our soil? Do we need cow feed? What crop are we going to go to next? There's a lot of questions there that I like to look at and then we'll build a blend accordingly. The return on investment is there for you. Yeah, I'm seeing it. The soil health has been excellent. With the crop prices moving up and down and rain is sometimes we don't get the rains we need and it's still a struggle at times, but I'm using less inputs. So by growing covers in different time frames, I'm using less herbicide as burn down. I'm using like this year, I only had to do one pass in bean crop. And you know, like I said, no fertilizer over the beans. So there is savings there. Austin's operation is just one of many across the nation who are partnering with General Mills to implement regenerative principles. Partnerships like these are key to ensuring American soils stay healthy and American farmers stay in business. In Nickerson, Kansas, I'm Andrew McRae. Thanks, Andrew. Well, when we come back, John Phipps. Vaccination feedback. Well, we head back to Illinois for customer support with John Phipps this week. Paul Butler had a strong response to my comments regarding vaccination reluctance. I will append his entire email to the online post of this segment, but will address today just the last sentences. Until then, saying nonsense like we don't care about other people or are anti-vaxxers is just showing ignorance. When it comes time to do it, it will be because it was our choice, not because someone who likely knows less than us chose to call us names to manipulate our personal decisions. I hear you, Paul, but I'm not sure you heard me accurately. While as a rule I try to avoid defensive answers, I do want to correct your statement. I did not say people refusing vaccination did not care about others. Here is the clip in question. 
people rejecting vaccination may appear to be logically accepting a very low risk, but they also identify themselves as less concerned about others. Now that wording may seem to split hairs, but it is as precise as I could make it. Identifying as uncaring occurs for the same reason that a t-shirt or yard sign or bumper sticker have become judgmental shortcuts. Called heuristics, these are quick rules of thumbs our brains instinctively use to categorize others as threats. We evolved to live in much smaller groups, and determining friend from foe rapidly used to be an important skill. As a result, when I see people remove their masks immediately after entering Walmart, investing time to understand why is not my first impulse. I just avoid the person, considering them part of a group with whom I have few shared values. In the same way, my remarks on any number of topics over the years have pigeonholed me in many minds as well. The vaccination issue is binary. Either you choose to or you don't. There are no subdivisions for nuanced reasons. Many vaccine avoiders do so for religious or political reasons. Others subscribe to, frankly, bizarre internet conspiracy theories. The common thread for those opting out, however, is the risk is too great for me, but not others. Waiting to see how it turns out for others is prudent for individuals, perhaps, but it makes achieving herd immunity harder, prolonging the stress on our medical system, not to mention suffering and death. Refusers can still spread the virus, after all. The good news is the number opting out seems to be declining. It was a third a few weeks ago and is now down to about one-fourth. Regardless of why, refusing to get vaccinated places an individual in this group. And like a yard sign, others judge these actions and apply the characteristics of the group to the individual. It may not be fair, but it is a real phenomenon. Thanks, John. Well, as farmers hit the fields, some important chemistries are hard to find. We'll tell you about it next. Join Andrew McCrae for Farming the Countryside, a farmer-focused podcast all about production agriculture. Brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven, the nitrogen-producing microbes that stay put, whether or not. Visit pivotbio.com. We told you about this earlier in the show. When you think about farm supplies and short supply, you can add chemistries like glyphosate and glufosinate to that list. Retailers also tell us insecticides and fungicides. Those may be next. Planting season is already being met with some supply concerns. The big concern we have today, it's, it's April 22nd. Uh, a lot of things should be already in, in place or staged for use in 2021, 20, um, but we're still kind of waiting on supply to come in um, from the manufacturers. Growmark, a large ag retailer with a footprint in Iowa and Illinois, says the two main issues are with glyphosate and glufosinate. There's, you know, there's, there's tech problems getting from China. There's logistics. There's, there's production. There's manufacturing. In fact, there's a shortage on bottles and, and caps and, and, and cardboard boxes. Bravo Research's Sam Taylor says the backlog isn't an easy fix. So I think in reality, you're talking about uh, a lot of months. I think that anything that is being produced now is not going to really make it into the supply chain for this coming season. For Iowa State's weed specialist, the timing is tough. If the growers knew this, these shortages were present uh, last fall, they could have worked with their suppliers and come up with uh, good alternatives. Now some retailers are encouraging farmers to prepare for plan B. First, talk to their retailers and see what's available. Um, I mean, we do have lots of alternatives, fortunately. And 
those alternatives are not as effective. Uh, they take a lot more management. So it's really critical to determine what is available to know how best to utilize those programs. And as Growmark works to find solutions for farmers seeing shortages, the situation may not be resolved soon. My big concern right now is, is the refill opportunities um, on bulk loads and, and, and refilling bulk tanks for the, the post application. Um, again, that's kind of the, the challenge we have right now is, is the supplier, the vendor going to be able to refill those in timely fashion to meet the demand in the rapid pace of, of, of planting and spraying that we have that we have today. Work underway to create new plans as the shortage may hit plant health products next. On our horizon right now, it, it really goes back to the fungicides and, and insecticides. With high demand and the hiccups in supplies, some experts say that this could be an issue that lasts 12 to 18 months. All right, that does it for this weekend on U.S. Farm Report. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to join us again next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.